book of Romans, chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 9 through 20, preaching from the same. Romans, chapter 3, verse 9, all the way to verse 20. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known, for there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you this morning and our longing... Our longing is that we might understand it well, so that by knowing your word, we are able to do it and to live according to it, that we might not be tossed to and fro by every wave and doct- of doctrine, false doctrine, but Lord, that we might go forth from this place, not only better understanding the gospel that is so clear in these three chapters that we have gone through already in the book of Romans, but that we might understand how the doctrine of God and men shapes all that we do, how we are to think of our neighbor, and why it is that we need that very thing that alone saves us, Christ's blood and righteousness, that we might be better armed, better equipped, and therefore live lives of faithfulness before you. And so, Lord, to conform our minds, our hearts, after the pattern of righteousness that we find in your word, for the glory of your name and for the building of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, we ask this then in your name. Amen. One of the things that man has historically done, as we see in Romans chapter 1, is to develop by his own imaginations, gods or a god after his own likeness, that is fashioned in accordance with his own longings. Uh, One of the ways we see this, even at the time of Paul's own writing, was Paul lived in the time of the Roman occupation of the land of Israel. Israel was inundated by all manner of idols, they being idols or idolaters themselves. What was common in a Roman system is what we often call myth now. The Romans were not unlike the Greeks, And in Lewis's wonderful work of fiction, Till We Have Faces, the primary character that relays their misery under the work of the gods who dwells upon the gray mountain recites this, I will accuse the gods, 
especially the God who lives on the gray mountain. That is, I will tell all he has done to me from the very beginning as if I were making my complaint of him before a judge. And then here is the telling sentiment of a heart of a man who has no one to come between the God or gods and himself. There is no judge between gods and men. And the God of the mountain will not answer me. This is the deep, sorry estate into which all idolaters are thrust due to the fall. Romans 1 speaks of this reality. There is a God who dwells upon the mountain. I know that he is angry with me. And in order to deal with the terror and the wrath and indignity of my own life, I will find an advocate who can answer between him and me. Or I will fashion that God in such a way that I can answer him out of the the repository of my own efforts. Works righteousness. And even as I have read, even as we have sung, there is nothing that you and I can do. There is no deed of the human flesh. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, Paul concludes this section with, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. And so you cannot go to God and say, look at all I have done and look at the things that I have avoided and hope to stand acquitted before him and to hear those sweet words, you are justified in my sight. And so what Paul has been doing for the first three chapters of Romans is he has greeted the Roman church and then he immediately states the gospel that it is from faith to faith. For the just shall live by faith. Faith in what? Faith in the work of Christ on our behalf. And then he talks about the two alternatives to the genuine article. That genuine thing that is salvation by grace through faith. There is the the scheme of the Gentiles, the scheme of the Jews. And then he looks at those two anecdotal evidences of their inadequacy to be reconciled to God by applying just doctrine, strict theological statement. And that is where we find ourselves. The answer in chapter 3 begins with the doctrine of God in verses 1 through 8, and here in verses 9 through 20, the doctrine of man. Now, in John Calvin's The Institutes of Christian Religion, He begins that book in the preface by stating that the only two doctrines that we ought to really begin with as it relates to understanding all biblical doctrine is a proper doctrine of God and a proper doctrine of man. Out of those two things, all biblical doctrine flows. And if we don't get those two things right, guess what we get? We get it all wrong. We get ecclesiology wrong. We get the sacraments wrong. We get it all wrong. We get the doctrine of salvation or soteriology wrong. We get the doctrine of the end times or the doctrine of how things began. We get it all wrong if we do not see that God is creator and redeemer and that men are those who in their sin are in need of redemption. And so even though this is Christianity 101, 
you can never lose those principles that you first learned in Christianity 101. And so even though you may work for NASA and you make rocket boosters, you never forget when your parents said, don't forget about gravity. In fact, everything they're doing at NASA is because of what you learned when you were two years old and you tripped and you fell face forward and you busted your nose. How do we get out of this gravitational pull? It all comes together. And so two points that I want to make this morning as it relates to a continuation of two joined doctrines, verses 1 through 8, the doctrine of God, this morning the doctrine of man. What does the Bible have to say about you and me? And it's not complimentary. All right, verse nine, or two points, sorry. Neither, neither is better than the other. We see that in verse 9. Neither is better than the other. And then secondly, no one is good at all. Is that clear enough? <laughs> no one is good at all. And we see that in verses 10 through 20. All right, let's look at the first point. Neither is better than the other. Now, I want to begin by evaluating both models, perhaps a final time. Now, this is what John Murray says in relationship to this particular section. It is not likely that the rendering, are we better than they, is correct. It is more likely that the thought is, are we excelled? Or in Myers, this is another commentator, Myers' words, do we put forward anything in our defense? What do we have? What is our defense comprised of before a holy God as sinful men? But in any case, Murray continues, whether the question is that of the superiority of the Jew over the Gentile or of the Gentile over the Jew, the succeeding context, that means what follows, shows that the question is introductory to the demonstration that there is no difference in respect of sin and condemnation. The way that it is put colloquially is this. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. No one has a leg up. There is no equity. All men stand condemned. Now, how are they condemned? Well, the Gentile is condemned in verses 1. Uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, by a rejection of natural law, which is God's revelation of himself in nature and in the very hearts of man, even if they have never opened the pages of Scripture. God can condemn apart from this. And he does it all the time. He does it everywhere. And so when those who have never heard the gospel die apart from Christ... They die justly condemned in their sins. God is not unjust to condemn those who have never heard the gospel because they die condemned as lawbreakers. That is all that is needed. Have you broken God's law? And have you done so knowingly, willfully, rebelliously? And Paul makes the first point that Gentiles, that is those who theologically in terms of their relationship to revelation, the revelation of the word, who have never read it or heard it, still are justly condemned. This is not a hard concept here, but it is often a hard concept here, is it not? It is difficult for us to reconcile 
how God could condemn those who had never heard the gospel. And this is not something that we need to find a way around. Paul simply states it clearly. No one is righteous. That is the theological statement that is reflected in the lives of the Gentile world. And by Jew and Gentile, Paul means those who have not received the oracles of God, that is his revelation, his special revelation, and those who have. That's the difference between the term Jew and Gentile here. But then there is also another model, and that model is the Jewish model of rebellion. We see that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 29, where they reject special revelation. Which is the more heinous rejection? And Paul actually makes that clear. That having received the oracles of God, having borne in their flesh the sign of the covenant in their circumcision, you would think that having all of this, that they would say when Christ comes, Christ the substance, the full revelation of those Old Testament promises now in the flesh, they would embrace him. And yet in the Gospels, what do we see? By and large, not all, some, as Paul says, some of the Jewish people looked at Christ and they said, crucify him. Why? Because their hearts are the same as the Gentile hearts. They are no better off. And what they are doing is they are practicing the same sin of trying to cast off the lordship of the one who created them and endeavors to redeem them. And has revealed himself to be their redeemer. But what they have done is they have done so within this glorious relationship where they have gotten all of God's revelation, both natural and special. And so he exposes, Paul does, both of these approaches as being inadequate to solve the problem of sin. Now, how is the Gentile trying to solve that problem? They are trying to solve the problem of their knowledge of the wrath of God by suppressing it. Think taking a beach ball and pushing it under the water by suppressing the truth of God and exchanging it for unrighteousness. Now, that effort of pushing a beach ball under the water takes a lot of effort. Does it not? So when you go up to someone and say, I'm sorry, but you can't live that way. You can't be whatever you want to be. You can't marry whomever you want to marry. You can't say that a person inside the womb is not a person. You can't do this. You can't make a law unto yourself. Name that law. And as you begin to challenge this system that they're trying to use to help them hold the knowledge of God underwater, do you think that will be a welcome reception? Just think about being in a house and you got all these things going on. Something here, something there, and a kid comes in and says, um, can I add something else to your list? No! <laughs> I'm busy enough as it is. Go away! This is the way the unbeliever will receive this offer. I have a solution to the problem of your tired arms holding the beach ball underwater. 
And then they say, no, and so what do you begin to do? You begin to do an evangelistic ministry of, right? You begin to sort of aggravate them to the point where they have to let go of the, they just can't take it anymore, to expose them to the truth of God's word. That's what we're doing with Gentiles. Now, here is what the Jews were saying. You got a problem there. You're disobeying the law. I know the law. I know the Ten Commandments. But their approach to the oracles of God was all form and no substance. And in fact, at a particular point in time, because they denied the substance, they actually abandoned the form. This actually happens to us as believers. When we lose the heart of true religion... That is a heart and a deep affection for the triune Lord. What follows? The forms of that religion. We don't come to the table. We don't gather as God's people. We don't keep the law. It's a hollowed out, empty religion. Children, it's like that bunny, perhaps the chocolate bunny that you got in the little box. And you take it and go, this is suspiciously light. And you hit the bunny on a corner of a table and it just cracks because it's not like the one pound Hershey kiss that you can just walk around the house and gnaw on for a month. There's nothing in it. It's hollow. It's empty. It has all the form of something that looks delicious and substantial, but there's no center. What Christ says to the Pharisees is you look so good on the outside, but inside you are rotting flesh. It's not just an empty chocolate bunny. It's a chocolate bunny filled with garbage. And you can't eat it at all. It's nothing. It's of no use whatsoever. Those are the two approaches and their incumbent weaknesses. And so what Paul is saying is this. The Gentile method of running... And the Jewish method of hiding behind law without substance, neither of those will get you justified. They don't work. Neither, verse 9, is better than the other. What then are we better? That is Paul speaking as a Jew. Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are still under sin. When did Paul charge them? In the verses just prior to this. I just said all this, Paul's saying. And so both approaches reveal the nature of their rebellion and are themselves sin. And this is what they show. There is, in fact, no effort, either on either sides of those poles or some hybrid version of both, There is nothing on the spectrum of human effort that is able to justify us before God. And then the question is, in the first eight verses, which I talked about last week, I don't like that. I don't like the fact that I'm not judged. That's the next response, right? If I have been found guilty, children, you know this, your parents catch you. It's too late to lie. They've already caught you in your sin, and so then you begin to do the what? It's time to barter. I'm going to make a bargain. I'm going to start bartering. I'll never do it again. Well, the problem of that is what? 
Well, you've already done it 15 times. Are your parents really so gullible to think, oh, this is the time? I believe you. You're right. You'll never do this again. I'm sorry. I should not have said anything. Continue, please, to live your life that we begin to bargain. And so one of the ways that we often bargain is by pleading. The way here that we find bargaining as it relates to a just God is, I'm going to accuse God of injustice. Because if we can accuse God of injustice, what that means is he doesn't have a moral leg to stand on. So maybe, kids, you've done this before. I don't know. I hope you're not so audacious. Dad, I've seen you lose your temper. Mom, I've seen you yell at us. I've seen you sin. How can you then punish me for something you've done? And you say, good point. Good point. And this is the humility aspect that comes in. As human parents, we are still called to punish our children, in fact, for maybe even the same sins that we've committed that very day. And we can say to our children, I am not the righteous judge of heaven and earth. I am but a tool in the hand of God to make sure you learn to hate your sin. And one of the things that I'm learning right now, even as I punish you, is how much I should hate my sin more. But it does not negate this, that God as judge, who is infinitely righteous and his character cannot be assailed and it will never change, is the one whom we are accusing of, we are accusing of injustice when we say, God, I don't like what you have to say. And not only that, but what sinful men then do is say, if God's righteousness is displayed with my unrighteousness and his truth is displayed with my lies, then it doesn't it make sense that I have a ministry of dishonesty and unrighteousness? Don't I do something by, to enhance the glory of God by being a scoundrel? And Paul says, no. In fact, the logic is... No, that's not how it works. May it never be. And so at the end of these eight verses of chapter 3, Paul concludes with their condemnation is just. You have found man another way whereby you cannot wiggle out of God's judgment. It can't be done. And so all we can do is sit and take our lumps Because we are, as Paul would say, we are no better. They're bad. We're bad. All men are, here it is, under sin. And there is no way to get out from under that sin by begging, borrowing, or stealing. By pretending to be righteous, by creating a whole other religion, or by accusing God of injustice. And so then, having moved through all of that, summarized in verse 9, Paul begins to give biblical evidence of this reality. This is not a new gospel. This is not a new reality in the New Testament. In fact, Paul is writing both to Jew and Gentile, and he is saying, 
here is the evidence all along that you cannot slip out from underneath the law of God. You cannot keep it under your own justification. You must stand condemned before God. And this leads me then to my last point. Not, no one, only have two, no one is good at all. So let's look at verse 10. As it is written, this comes from Psalm 14, verse 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Now, before we get into very simple scriptural exegesis, I want to take a theological aside that is not so aside. I want to talk about the doctrine of total depravity. I want to talk about the doctrine of total depravity, and then I want to provide the biblical evidence that backs it up. The doctrine of total depravity is this, that you and I, every man, woman, and child that has ever been conceived, not born, but conceived, because there are some children that were conceived and not born. Everyone who has been conceived in sin, the psalmist says, was I conceived. Not that the act of conception was sinful, but the product of conception is sinful. Every human soul, every human body, every human person is sinful. One of the Puritans, William Beveridge, writes, Not only the worst of my sins, as it relates to total depravity, but the best of my duties speak me a child of Adam. Now, what is he talking about? That the doctrine of total depravity, that is every faculty, every human faculty, our minds, our hearts, everything is stained by sin, comes to us from our father, Adam. Because when Adam sinned, all men sinned in Adam because he was our federal or covenant head. That means Adam first represented all humanity before God. We call that federal theology. This is covenant theology 101. It's the first class of covenant theology. And so later in the book of Romans, Paul will talk about either we are in Adam, and if we are in Adam, we are still sinners, lost in our sin, and then the second Adam, who is Christ, and if we are in him, we are redeemed. So there are only two kinds of people on earth, those who are in Adam, those who are in Christ. But all of us naturally born, given life, possessing a reasonable soul and body, are conceived and born in sin. Now, Blaise Pascal, who is a, a writer of, of many types of literature, wrote, Man is nothing but a subject so naturally full of error that it can only be eradicated through grace. There is nothing to show him the truth, for everything deceives him. The two, the two, sorry, the two so-called principles of truth Reason and the senses are not only not genuine, but are engaged in mutual deception. Through false appearances, the senses deceive reason. And just as they trick the soul, they are in turn tricked by it. It takes revenge. The senses are influenced by the passions which produce false impressions. What? Now remember that Blaise Pascal is writing in an era in which people were idolizing reason and rationale. This is sort of at the end of the age that we call enlightenment. How ironic. 
Just like the Dark Ages were not dark, the Age of Enlightenment was not enlightened. What Blaise Pascal is saying is this. Everything you do, everything you see, everything you are, every emotion you feel, every act of reason or rationale is stained by a corrupting influence, and that corrupting influence is sin. And so when man says, let us come together and reason, you should go, uh-oh. It's like the writing room at Disney today. Do you understand? <laughs> Everything they invent now becomes what? Some communist, humanistic, secular, hedonistic scree. It's all garbage. Why? Because they think we are separating ourselves, we are unshackling ourselves from the mores of Christian tradition, but all they get for it is what? Well, a broken box office. And what? A broken morality. Every sense and reason of man is fallen. And so whether you are Jew or Gentile, all alike. And when I say Jew or Gentile, I'm not talking about ethnicity. I'm talking about doctrinal substance stuff. Pagan or religious None of us can do or desire to do what is good and pleasing to God. We are fallen man to the back teeth, wholly opposed to good in every way. And the standard which God has revealed in his word we hate. And in creation, we do not think, feel, or do in a way that pleases God. But all of it is contrary to his will. Psalm 51. I'm sorry, Psalm 53 Verse 1 through 3, the fool has said in her, his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them is turned aside. They have together become corrupt. Here it is again. There is none who does good. No, not one. And when we read this, the tendency of the human heart even in the Christian church, and especially because we're the ones who read this, but what about me? Am I not the lone exception? Am I not the holdout? No. None of us are. Now, that does not mean that we are as depraved as we can be. But mothers, when that baby is born... And you take that baby in your arms for the first time and you look at that baby and all you can do is smile and you should. You should look at that little baby and already pray, Lord, give this child who has now had birth, new birth. Make this child one born into the kingdom of heaven by the spirit and water. Why? Because as beautiful as that baby is, that baby will one day become a teenager. Do you know? Those of you who know, know. It's the same baby. And you go, Lord, can we just shrink that child and move back in history so I could see that? And you know, oftentimes as parents write you, you try to remember what it was like to hold that baby for the first time. And then you look at that teenager's face and go, I'm having trouble remembering right now. Why is that the case? Well, they did learn some sins from their parents. They got a lot of sin from their parents. And they got sin from their father, Adam. Unless, unless something changes. 
But that change that needs to occur cannot come from these hands or this mind or this heart. It must come from somewhere else. That's the doctrine of total depravity. And the Bible is full of it. So as Paul then moves through here, stay with me just a couple of more minutes, we see there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. That should leave all of us silent before God. And in fact, that's what verse 19 says. Every mouth should be shut. But what is our tendency? But I have one more thing to say in my defense, Lord. If you will notice Exhibit A, in the year 2023, I didn't eat any candy. I didn't do X. And this is how superficial and silly these things seem, right? I helped all of the old ladies I saw across the street. I didn't talk back to my parents one time when I was in front of them. I didn't cheat. I didn't steal. I didn't lie. And God's going, well, actually, I have a record here. You go, oh, wait, wait. I forgot about that one. And so the list grows. And in fact, Paul sharpens the point. Because as much as we want to make light of... Laugh at, delight in. Because one of the most effective ways to deal with the guilt of our sin is to do what? Let's have a party to celebrate it. There are women now who take to social media to shout their abortions. What does that mean? It's the evil mirror of gender reveal parties, as they call them. We'll call them sex reveal parties, right? What is the sex of the baby? And it's like a blue confetti or pink confetti. In fact, when New York State passed the most liberal, violent abortion bill in American history, they lit up the Empire State Building pink. Why? In honor of women. Just not the women we're going to kill. It's women's health, after all. Now, I know I talk about this, I, this concept, this action a lot. The reason I do so is because I do not want us to be deceived by the veneer of modern society that we are not a barbaric and vicious culture. And we come into church and we hear these ideas and we think, man, that was sweet. I like that theology. I feel very reformed today. And while we are reforming in here, just outside those walls, there is disgusting deformation. And the reason why Paul was writing the book of Romans was because he was going to Spain to be a missionary. This is a missionary letter. And as a missionary letter, this is the substance. This is the very foundation of how we ought to think of the world and therefore go into it. And here is what we read of men, beginning in verse 13. There are five statements about the mouth, and they're all bad. It is an open tomb. It is deceitful. It is the poison of snakes. It is full of cursing and bitterness. Cursing and bitterness, that's five. And not only is our mouth full of poison and toxins, 
But men are quick to evangelize according to this poison. They are, our neighbors are being evangelized everywhere you go. But by what and by whom? Natural man, well, let me say it this way. All men are evangelists. It's what are we evangelizing in? What is the news we're telling? And the news of the gospel is there is a holy God in heaven and you are sinful and there is no way to access God because you are broken in your sin. And every man is that way. That's the beginning of the gospel. The famous apologist Ray Comfort said, in order to bring people to an awareness of their need for the gospel, you have to drag them across the law. And there are a lot of people who have not been drugged across the law in a long time. Maybe their parents never really drug them across the law. But this is who we are. This is the biography. This is our biography. Where our feet are swift to shed blood, there is misery and destruction in our ways, and the way of peace. We do not know peace. Listen, peace in the church is even hard enough. There's no peace in the world. Why is there always fighting? Because we love to fight. And just because one people may look more like us than the other, we are all prone to war and fighting and destruction. And the reason for all of that is stated in verse 18. After all of this, Paul says, it is because there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no internal impulse from Scripture, from nature. There is nothing they are taking from that that would cause them to say, I am in trouble and I need help. And to seek that help from God himself. Because there is something true of men that keeps us in this state of misery. We are under the law. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. All of us naturally, that is, prior to our being made new in Christ Jesus, we are all under the law. That doesn't mean that the law doesn't have anything to say to Christians. It has something to say to everybody. Here, when Paul says under the law, it means under the weight and condemnation of the law. We feel it like a, a weight pressing down upon us, and we cannot get out from underneath it by lying or inventing false religions or by saying, hey, I know the law. I know how the mechanics of that press works as it's pressing you down into a patty. We are stuck there. In this state of sinful rebellion. And what the law says is that all men are under its own weight. We are condemned. And our only response is, verse 19, the second part, every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man, his holiness and our sinfulness, leads us to the place where we have nothing to say in our defense. And there is nothing we can say. Now, Paul will get to what we say. And that's where the table comes in, right? Every Sunday when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are reminded through the gospel, that's the gospel right there, 
the gospel is proclaimed to our eyes how it is this weight of God's wrath can actually be lifted off of our shoulders. Because there is justification. Now, there is no justification by deeds of the law, but Paul has already said it. How are we saved? For in the righteousness, verse 17 of chapter 1, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul will circle back to that. And in verses 21 through 26, what does he say? Well, we'll get there next week. But you know it. It's not a spoiler alert. Just tune in next Sunday. Make sure you don't die, right? Because you need to hear the end. No, you need to know this. What is it? That the righteous live by faith. And again, it isn't just, well, I know the gospel. It is a clinging to the gospel as our only hope. It is building your life upon the gospel. It is the only way that that sentence of guilty can become a sentence of innocent and righteous. But unless Christ's righteousness becomes our own, there is no help for us. Let's pray. Lord.